Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. We've got uh, Guy Talk continuing. We've got an amazing show for you. If you have a question that you would like to let us try to answer, send it over, 877-933-2484. My panel today is Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. So, love to hear from you. Here's a question. Gentlemen, uh, can you please explain Luke 17 verse 3 and how repentance plays into God's forgiveness like is repentance crucial and if it is how shall we teach the narcissist or any other one who is deceived into believing they have done nothing wrong well my problem is I don't think I've done anything wrong until I get confronted with it (laughs) and I have to look at myself in the mirror and realize I've made a mess out of this Repentance is simply getting honest with yourself and the before the Lord. The Lord shows you the contrast in his word between how I did this and how he wanted me to do it. And so I come to a point where I say, yeah, I need to repent. And I, I saw a great illustration. Repentance is really the concept, and the, the artist who did this showed somebody top of their head coming off and their brain coming out, and Jesus top of his head and his brain coming in. Repentance is really getting the mind of Jesus about a behavior, an attitude, an action, a reaction. And when you repent, then you're really asking for his mind so you can begin to look at it a new way. And I know couples that I've counseled with, when husbands and wives will pray together and repent before one another and admit, I was wrong when I did this, I've seen a lot of marriages healed. When that isn't there, I don't know how it gets healed. I like that. I think that's that's a great observation. Um, uh, if you look at the book of Acts, uh, there are a couple of different words that are used uh, to talk about salvation. And uh, depending on the episode, one is usually emphasized over the other. But metanoia uh, is the uh, the Greek word for repentance. It means the change of mind. It means to turn away from your sin. Uh, and then it's usually... Um, uh, connected with the word epistrepho, uh, which means to turn toward. Uh, so there's a turning away from sin, and there's a turning toward God. Uh, it's going back. God is calling us back to himself. Uh, and uh, when we repent, we recognize that we have fallen short, and we acknowledge that. And as as men, we're not often given to self-reflection. Maybe women are better at this. I, I know I'm not. Uh, but when we do reflect and we see that we come short, we turn away from that, uh, and we turn toward God. Uh, through faith in Christ, uh, and uh, faith is that other component. It's uh, Repentance by itself and turning toward God are not possible without faith in Christ. So all three of those things work together uh, in the book of Acts when it comes to salvation. There's a component you're talking about regarding, um, or the question had, regarding narcissism. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not sure about the uh, clinical diagnosis, right? I'm, I'm a missionary. That's, that's not my <laughs> expertise. But, uh, but something that's uh, very clear in Scripture is... If you are in the presence of God, 
is when you recognize how vile you are. Mm -hmm. We see this example multiple times, for example, in Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah, a righteous man of God, comes in the presence of the Lord, and then he recognizes how vile he is. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. We see this in the book of Job in chapter 40, where the most righteous man on earth comes into the presence of God, and he said, before I had much to say, now I recognize I'm vile. Uh, if you think you're good, it's because you're comparing yourself to the wrong source. Mm. Because if we compare ourselves to the Lord, we recognize our own sinfulness and our own need for a Savior. I love how Paul says this in Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where he says, We dare not compare excuse me, we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Uh, you know, I, I might look good uh, compared to my neighbor, not me, but somebody else might look good compared to their neighbor. But, uh, um, but, but if you compare yourself to God, you recognize where you stand. And, and really that call, I think, that we see in Luke is, uh, is, is really should be simple for us to repent of our sinful nature if we recognize, hey, I am a sinner. God can forgive me. And, uh, and there's a beautiful process that we go through in this. Almost every family I've worked with has at least one family member that can be classified as narcissist. That is, everything's about them. Everything's your fault. You know, they're always doing what's right. You're doing what's wrong. And if you just listen to them, everything would be okay. What I find, uh, my counsel over the years with these people has been, look, when you have somebody like that, and they will never admit they're wrong, they will never admit that they've sinned, they will never admit that they're the problem, no matter what they say. Start bringing the name of Jesus into the conversation, not in a flippant way, but say, I don't think Jesus would agree with you on that one. Why do you defy Jesus when you talk that way? And well, couldn't that result in uh, somebody getting really mad? Well, yeah, but narcissism, I think it's the devil's tool to shut up Christians, to keep us from talking to people because we're so afraid of the reaction of the other person. And so in my counseling, when I have people come in and they seem to lean along those lines, I really pour on them the name of Jesus. It's been amazing. I had one guy leave, and three weeks later he called me and he said, I hated you. I hated you when you did that. You've driven me crazy. I've been able to sleep. What have I got to do? I said, you need to repent and receive Jesus. He said, can we do that now? And we got together, and he did. Praise God. So there is power in the name of Jesus. I just don't think in Christianity we know how to use it in a good way. And and I don't ever want to use it flippantly. But I found I bring the name of Jesus in. Things begin to happen. Agree. All right, gentlemen, uh, Matthew 23, uh, verse 15, I'll read it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Is this the most severe insult ever uttered by Jesus? Well, I think whitewashed sepulchers is pretty bad, too. <laughs> but, yeah, it's pretty pretty strict. What's interesting is this. Jesus was harsh on the religious leaders. He was gentle with the people that were prostitutes and tax collectors. And for me, that's been a good lesson. I find when I'm around pastors, I'm not afraid to speak up. And I will tell them, no, what you're saying is wrong. When I'm dealing with a parishioner, then I usually take a different route. Not that we don't eventually, hopefully, get around to the right place. But there's usually more going on there. Uh, So, yeah, it is an insult. And Jesus did that occasionally. He wasn't always meek and mild, as we like to think. 
uh, just holding a lamb in his arm, he got in people's face and told them the truth. I'd say the same thing is true with John the Baptist. Uh, he referred to the Pharisees who had come to uh, check him out uh, as a brood of vipers. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that's not a compliment. No. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, my students ask me about that, and, and I, I tell them that uh, that doesn't make name-calling biblical. Uh, I do think there's a prophetic license uh, that that God gives certain people, uh, and they uh, call people out in a very blunt way. Uh, I don't think that means that we should feel free to uh, call people names and you know denigrate them. They're creating the image of God, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. So we we have to be careful there. But I do think there are some people that have that prophetic gift, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and they're going to call things as they see them. Nicely done. All right. John 17.22 says that they may be one even as we are one. I know Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is one, is a collective one, but many teach that God is a single being. The John passage seems to say otherwise. What have I missed? Well, we're not talking about the Trinity, mm-hmm. which has been... I think that's been talked about for about 2,000 years. And we still don't have a definitive answer in the fullest sense. We have one God revealed in three persons. Like Jesus said to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, and I agree with that. But there's a, there's a mystery here. And so when we're looking at this verse here, we're still dealing with the same thing. We've got the Trinity, that's one being, but at the same time, it's in three persons, and when you've met Jesus, you're in the presence of all three. I wish I knew how to say it better than that. Trevor, <laughs> please, please say it better than that. Why are you putting that on me? <laughs> so, uh, so, so, yeah, I mean, clearly the context here actually, and this is, this is a beautiful section of Scripture because when you go back to verse 20, it's actually Jesus play, praying for those that will believe in him. Yeah. Um, this is actually us. Isn't that cool? I love that in Scripture where you're reading something and it's actually you that he's talking about. And and in this section, clearly, so the, so the context of this, and again, Tom expressed this, this isn't talking about the Trinity. That's not the context here. The context here is talking about unity of the followers of Jesus. Um, we're good at dividing. You know, the, the, one of the strongest thing I think that unites, unfortunately, is persecution. I, I, I yeah. care less about your eschatology if I, we're both going to die because we're professing Jesus. Mm. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of the reality. But this is, this is partially what he's really addressing because earlier he's talking about how he is one with the Father. And, and it's more of a, I believe in this context, and, and I'm sure glad that we have a New Testament professor here to correct anything that I might say wrong. But I believe, but I believe in this context, it's actually talking about being unified. Unified in heart, unified in purpose, unified in being part of the body of our Lord. And, and this is the hope that we, all of the followers of Jesus, will be unified in who Jesus is, as opposed to maybe some theological distinctions. Mm-hmm. As long as okay, it's Randy, no pressure. Yeah, zero pressure, Randy. <laughs> oh, there's, there's so much here. So this is called uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and it is a prayer of intercession. Uh, also, as Christians, we believe in progressive theology. So we read in Deuteronomy 6 that God is one, and this was called the Shema, right? Uh, but it doesn't tell us what that looks like. It's, we really have to wait until the New Testament until we get this idea that God is triune. 
right? We've got the Holy Spirit, we've got Jesus, and we've got God the Father. So this idea of the Trinity, but I, I don't want to miss the point of, of what Trevor was saying about the unity that should characterize us. I think this is part of the fruit we should bear. If you look at the vices that Paul condemns in almost all of his letters, it's disunity. Uh, if you look at the sins that grieve the Holy Spirit, they are social, relational sins among believers. Uh, unity is so important for the church, and yet it seems to be so hard for us to achieve. And I do agree with what Trevor says. I think that persecution has a purifying effect on the church, and I think that there is greater unity in churches that are persecuted than churches that have the amount of freedom that we have in this country. Well, it's kind of like on your deathbed. You know, traditionally, there are three questions people ask over and over on their deathbed. doesn't matter who you are, and I've looked into that. Well, isn't it the same in the church? We can argue about everything, including the potluck dinners, but when somebody's coming in with a gun to shoot us, suddenly that potluck dinner doesn't mean anything anymore. What it does mean is, how am I saved, and am I going to go to heaven? And I think that persecution, and I don't want it. I don't want it for my kids, my grandkids, or anybody, but it's also the way where we get serious. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more Guy Talk. Let me know what questions you have. You have great questions coming over today. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. My power panel today. They're ready for your questions. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us, and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. If you just joined us, it's time for God Talk or Guys Who Talk. I've got a fantastic group of men ready to answer your questions. Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, Tom Parrish. Let me know what you have, 877-933-2484. Here's a question, gentlemen. I've had a hard time understanding Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. It seems as if Jesus doesn't want people to understand his parables. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. I can't make sense of this. Yeah, this is powerful, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And uh, I I can't tell you how often I've experienced this, I believe, even in my own life, to where uh, I'll have somebody, for example, maybe just start reading sections of Scripture, and they'll come to me and they'll say, well, none of it makes sense. Um, And sometimes, if you aren't willing to believe in Jesus, the scripture is masked. 
Um, and he even allows for that. So, so an, a, a fascinating example of this uh, could come from uh, that I run into sometimes with Jewish ministry is in Psalm chapter 40, verse 7. In, in Psalms 47 says, Then I said, Behold, in the scroll of this book is written of me. Okay? So for, for this is quoted actually in the book of Hebrews is Jesus really stating that this is all about him. All of the Hebrew scriptures is about him. And this is really the context that we have from this. But but it's interesting because in the Hebrew, uh, this doesn't have to be translated that the entirety of this book is written of me, but it can be said written for me. And And so it's almost like God allows people to see him. And he allows them not to. He doesn't force belief. And that seems to be emphasized both in this section and in the Psalms. And it's not that he hides himself from their belief, but when they choose to disbelieve, then he often allows them seemingly to be blinded from the truth that we see. Mm. You ever go into a great dinner? <clears throat> I mean, a fantastic dinner. And you eat this scrumptious. The dessert is overwhelming. You just love it. And you wish you had the recipes and could do it again. My first inclination is, Jan, my wife, get the recipe. But her first inclination is, who's the chef? And we're looking at the same thing here. You hear the parable. So it's like the scrumptious meal. Hey, it's very satisfying and very good. And I, I, I love it. But if you're not doing what Trevor's saying, if you're not asking, who's the chef? What lies behind this? Who is the one telling the parable? Why is he saying this? You missed the point. The disciples had the presence of being in the presence of the Lord, you know, day in and day out. The rest of the people didn't get that. But if they would, they would understand. So you're right. It's being in the presence of the Lord and searching out for who's the real chef here of the story. And when you know him, the parable makes sense. I like that. Uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, there's this emphasis on insiders and outsiders. Uh, you've got um, uh, Jesus' disciples that are, are inside the house. You've got Jesus' mother and brothers who are outside the house and who are his true family, those who do God's will, right? Uh, and I think this is true with this uh, interpretation of the parables, uh, that uh, for some people the parables are confusing. They don't understand them because they're outsiders. And I like what you said about knowing the chef before you understand the menu. Uh, and I think that's true. Are the ingredients? Uh, I think that's true here. I, I don't think you're going to understand the parables without knowing Jesus, or at least understanding the way he taught them without knowing him. You're you're an outsider. Uh, and how do you know if you're an insider or outsider? It's to the extent to which you understand. And I'm, I'm using the word understand here in, in a broader sense than just uh, intellectual assent. It's an actual uh awareness of the truth and then an application of that truth. So understanding has a stronger meaning than often what we think of in in our culture. Thank you for that. All right. Can you talk about the purpose of fasting? Does it help with personal healing or an unanswered prayer or hearing from God? Also about hearing from God more, could you touch base on being filled with the spirit and listening to God? Let's just start with the first question, which is about fasting. Does it does it help with personal healing or an un, unanswered prayer or hearing from God? Thoughts? Well, sometimes just not eating is good. You know, I mean, we all could use that once in a while. Um, it's interesting because I really dug into the scriptures trying to find out the real purpose of fasting. It doesn't really tell you. It, it advises to do it. Here's the problem. We live in a culture where you can get fast food. I can go through McDonald's and get my meal in two minutes. In Jesus' day, 
it took up the whole day. I mean, you had to go on the field, you had to get the grain, you had to bring it in, you had to slaughter the animal, you had to, you know, do all that. It was a long process. Well, what does that take away from? Prayer. Where when you fast, you give up the pleasure of eating and its nutrients and all of that because you're spending more time in prayer. I think the issue here is that most of us don't spend a lot of time in prayer because we're so busy with three meals a day, with the kids at school, with what's going to be on Netflix, rather than spending time with the Lord. So uh, we don't do that at my church. We have once a month now prayer and fasting. And it's just a 24-hour fast. I mean, most of us can survive it. But what I'm excited about is not when we come together and pray for 90 minutes in the evening uh, on that Sunday, but people tell me, I've spent more time in prayer today than I ever have. Wow. Amen. Yeah, I I love how Zacharias talks about fasting here, and it's in chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. And he says, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during the, excuse me, during the 70 years, did you fast for me, for me? He goes on and says, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And so really, the the concept is, of course, when you eat, it's for you. And so when you're fasting, it's for God. It's giving up something. Sacrifice is fascinating in Scripture. And even the gospel gives an illustration of this very powerfully. But sacrifice is giving up something that you deem important for something that you deem more important. And and the more important that thing is that you're giving, the more value you're giving towards the thing. So that that's like John three sixteen, and I mentioned this last week, where where uh, it says that that the Lord loved the world so much, right? God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. So the idea is, God values your eternal soul more than the temporary life of Jesus, and that's how much He values you. And so this is really what part of sacrifice is: it's seeking God, and it's seeking Him, and it's it's desperately trying to connect with Him in a deeper way. Thank you. That's one of the best parallels I've heard in a long time, and I mean that. I hadn't put that together with John 3.16, but you're exactly right. Nicely done. Randy, go ahead. Yeah, and, and what we were saying earlier about motive is so important. Uh, in uh, Matthew 6, Jesus talks about three acts of righteousness, giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. And he introduces each of these by when you do these things. So it's expected that we're going to give to the needy, that we're going to pray, and that we're going to fast. Uh, but what's just as important is our motivation for doing those things. The Pharisees did those things for self-aggrandizement. Again, yeah. look at me, look at me. And yet we're to do these things in private uh, so that we draw attention not to ourselves, but that we focus on God. And I, I, I like that. I think that's the purpose of fasting. We're giving up something to focus on God, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw attention to God, help us to draw attention to God. All right, nicely done. Thank you very much for that. Let's see, we don't have a lot of time left, and we've got some great questions coming in. Let me see if I can do a short one here. Um, Second Kings, well, Second Kings 2, 19 and 20, uh, talks about salt, and sometimes... The question is, I don't know if there's a deeper meaning on the salt reference in this passage. Second Kings 2, 19 and 20. Maybe we'll get that one queued up for the top of the uh, uh, next half hour. Trevor, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I appreciate that. He was, he was shaking his head no, which I love. 
Tom Parrish, you're looking for it as well? Um, Any thoughts on it? Um, I, no, I can't tell you anything right Good. yet. Good. Well. But we're going to try. I'm looking Randy's direction, and then we're going to break early. <laughs> <laughs> and that'll save the uh, segment. Uh, so, so God has him throw water in it, and he says, "I have uh, I salt, throw salt in the water. I feel this water never again. Will it cause death or make the land unproductive? And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the words Elisha has spoken. So it looks in this passage that God is using salt in um, kind of a healing way. And I, I do know in the day of Jesus that uh, salt was viewed as uh, having a medicinal benefit. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is where the idea comes from. I'm not sure. Interesting. We'll take a break. We'll come right back with lots more God Talk. Let me know what question you have. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Be right back. Welcome. If you just joined me, I hope you've had a great day. We are enjoying Guy Talk, and we've got time for your questions. 877-933-2484. My guests are Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. So whatever questions you have, they will do their very best to answer. All right. Let me ask you this, uh, gentlemen. Um, Why... Is it so difficult to be holy? What does being holy mean? People struggle with holiness. We don't talk about personal holiness very often. And what does it mean? If I remember right, doesn't holy in the Greek mean set apart? It does. Hegiadzo means to be set apart, to be separate. Yeah, and so holiness if you're trying to define it as being perfect in this life, you're going to have a problem. And we can all see how we fall short. But holiness in terms of the Lord is this whole concept of taking on the righteousness of Jesus and living for him, and even in our imperfection. Like I tell people on Sunday morning, you know, Lutherans always have a confession. And, And I now clarify it and say, look, if you don't know Jesus, this is the time to confess and receive him. If you do know Jesus... You're not confessing so you get to go to heaven. You're confessing because you're saved and you're thankful. And so the holiness is becoming like Jesus then, but we don't achieve that on our own. We achieve that because of him. Yes, submission, I would guess, right, is part of it. In in the Jewish culture, of course, we have a, a holiday that we celebrate often called Passover. And, and during the Passover, you drink uh, four cups in commemorance, really, of what the Lord did of bringing the Jewish people out of Egypt into the promised land during the Exodus. And the first cup is called the Kiddush cup from the Hebrew word Kadosh, right, which also means holy. And the idea is that God called us out of Egypt to be his special people. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I think that you're probably right, Tom, to where holiness has a lot to do with really submission to God to be his, giving up of myself giving myself to him as opposed to, uh, you know, my, by my own righteousness or something to that extent. 
Yeah, so I, I, definition I've heard of, of sanctification is becoming who we already, already are in Christ. And I think that's true. I think there's justification. We have a right standing before God. Uh, but there's this this theology in Paul's letters. They they call it the indicative, the imperative. So Paul will tell us who we are in Christ. That's the indicative. And then there's this imperative. Uh, we're now called to live that out. So we're already dead to sin, and yet we're to mortify the flesh. We're to put the flesh to death. And and so I like this idea of both and, not either or. But I also think that Paul recognizes in, in Romans chapter 7, but probably equally uh, Galatians 5, this idea that our old nature is not eradicated. There is a theology called eradicationism, that our old nature gets eradicated. All we have is the new nature as believers. And uh, talk to your spouse, talk to your parents, find out real quick, that ain't true. Uh, so we have these two natures, uh, and they're vying for our allegiance. And I like this idea of submission. Uh, I think we still have these old inclinations. Uh, the old nature is still there. Uh, but the new nature is there, and the Holy Spirit is there to empower that new nature so we can become more like Jesus. That's really our goal. The goal of sanctification, the goal of spiritual growth and development is to become more like Jesus. That's Isn't it interesting? Because that's our goal, and that's what we want. In this earthly life, though, apart from pursuing Jesus, the only thing that comes close to that is called marriage. It is, if in couples in marriage, if you really give yourself to the other person and live for that other person, you have a pretty good relationship. That's exactly what we're to do with Jesus. And often we don't do that or we don't understand that. And the devil is very good at telling us, hey, you haven't done enough. You got to try a little harder. And doesn't matter how hard you try, it's not going to work that way. You keep turning to Jesus. Gentlemen, what does resting in God mean? seems like humanity was created on the sixth day. So the very first thing we did was rest. So how do we... How do we first rest in God? How do we do that? Yeah, and uh, so we spoke about this before, but the the first mention of uh, Sabbath is in Exodus chapter 16, uh, the word particularly. And, uh, and I think I spoke on this last week, but the context had to do with when the Lord provided manna for the people of Israel. But the day before... The day of rest, Saturday, which would, was referred to in Hebrew as Yom Shabbat, what, what occurred on this day is the, the day before the Lord would give them twice as much uh, manna so that they could be provided for the, during that day. And, and so really the, the context that we see for Sabbath is, is trusting and depending in the provision of God. Um, even later in, in the book of Deuteronomy, when the Lord was instructing the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath, he said, remember that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So again, it's, it's, he's the savior. You trust in him. It's, he does the work. You don't do it. And, and even in the story of creation, uh, this is the individual, uh, who sent the message in was referring to the, the last thing that God makes in creation is man. Uh, it's, it's the very last part of creation that he makes. And everything that he made previous to that is actually providing for humanity. Um, so, so in giving man what they need to thrive and to survive, and, and then he rests. And so there's really that link again to provision, trusting in God as your provider. And I think that the greatest thing that we can trust in him to provide clearly is our salvation. Um, because I, I, there, I, there's no amount of righteousness in me that can earn this. I have to trust that the Lord sent his son to die for my sins. And then three days later, he rose again so that by the same spirit that he has everlasting life, we can too, if we put our faith and trust in him. Mm-hmm. All right. 
888-528-2484. The text line, we'd love to get your question. Uh, Randy, um, how are you like your mom? How am I like my mom? <clears throat> I just talked to my mom the other day. I had a, a dream the night before, and uh, I was uh, feeling anxious in my dream. Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, I, I feel like I've gotten control during the day mm-hmm. uh, when I'm conscious. But when I'm unconscious, my brain seems to gravitate towards that. But in my dream, uh, my mom was there uh, telling me that it was going to be okay. Nice. <laughs> and uh, I, I called her up, and yeah. I thanked her for that because it wasn't just in my dream. It's been my whole life. Uh, when, uh, I don't preach a lot. Uh, but one of my favorite sermons, uh, was, uh, on Mother's Day. I got to preach on Mother's Day. It was just, it was great. Uh, and I, and I talk about, uh, my mom's relentless love. I, I wasn't a great kid growing up. Again, I didn't come to faith in Christ till age 22. I was pretty reckless, uh, how I lived, what I said, those kinds of things. And, uh, yet, despite all those things, my mom loved me. And I never doubted that. Uh, I remember one time she told me, if anybody is ever following you and you're driving your car, just come home and hog the horn. I'll come running out. No, and she would have. That's so sweet. Know, somebody out there, big guy with a gun, she yeah. would have come running out there protect me. She just that's loves beautiful. me, and uh, I just, I'm so grateful for that. So how am I like my mom? I aspire to be like my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when my, my first my first child was born, uh, uh, Josh, uh, when he came out and I saw him for the first time, uh, I can't tell you that uh, the strength of that paternal instinct and love I had for that little guy. And, and it gave me a taste of what my mom feels for me. It just is this strong, uh, overwhelming sense of commitment and loyalty. Uh, and, I, and I aspire to have that. Uh, again, my mom has it in spades. Well, I did not see this answer coming, but that was really beautiful. Trevor, are you more like your mom or your dad? That's a good question. Uh, It depends on what side of my family I'm talking to. You're a wise man. Love them both, have wonderful parents. Uh, I mean that sincerely. You know, I pray for their coming to know the Lord quite regularly. I was the first person in my family to ever believe in Jesus. So, uh, um, so, so it's kind of, uh, it may be a unique thing in that context, but, uh, but they're, they're amazing parents, uh, lovely people, um, kind, and uh, really want the best for their kids. And so actually uh, people ask me sometimes, right, about uh, what my parents thought after I came to faith. And and I, I express it typically by saying that they always thought I was crazy, so this confirmed. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. uh, but, they, but they recognize that I have something. And, and so uh, really I think more so than uh, – than my desire to be like them. And of course I would love to be in many, many ways is my desire that they could come to know the Lord that I know. Mm-hmm. What about you, Tom? Both my parents are with the Lord now. Mm-hmm. And I would, uh, from my mother, strong will, okay. determined, you know, and from my dad, uh, incredible compassion and gentleness, uh, even with his enemies. And I want that in my life. And, and I try to do that, but I saw it in him. Mm-hmm. What is one of the hardest things you've ever done that you feel comfortable talking about? What are the hardest things you ever had to do in life? Anything come to mind? Yeah, well, profess my faith in Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, in a, in a Jewish family, this yeah. is anathema. Yeah. So um, Stakes are high, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and I remember my father's answer or reply very, very clearly. I remember he said, 
he, he told me this about his mother. He said, don't tell my mother. That was his first yeah. answer. Um, but he was uh, more tolerant. But don't he, let grandma know. Yeah. I mean, I was a, I was a drug addict and alcoholic and things of that nature. And I said, probably not addicted so much as I just did it regularly yeah. enough to qualify. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, but, uh, but, but in anyway, um, so, so they were real happy when all that was over. But but it still was hard because the it, it all of a sudden you're no longer seen as Jewish. I actually had family members that started saying because you, your uh, Judaism is understood to be inherited within rabbinical Judaism through the mother, right? And my mother's 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 a Gentile, actually a Norwegian. Um, so uh, technically, I think I'm a Jewthrin. But but anyway, <laughs> so so and so uh, they they would use that to justify my. Well, he was never Jewish anyway, and I remember replying. Well, then what was up with the bar mitzvah and the circumcision? I mean, why go through with that if I'm not Jewish? But, but, uh, but they would look for ways to justify it. So my family was very, was very kind to me, although I was nervous about it, obviously. All right. Tom? For me, it was... Uh, I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. Do you really? Oh, I have a feeling. Okay. But I'm, I'm going to let you answer. Go ahead. Well, okay. Uh, for me, one of the toughest ones was uh, hiding uh, a witch who had become a Christian, and my family was threatened for two years by the coven here in Minneapolis. They'd call us and threaten us and say they knew our boy's name and what school they went to, and if we didn't give her back, they would take her, take the boys. And uh, two things I had to learn to do there, how to stand firm in the midst of that when they would drive by the house or call. The other one was how to forgive them. And uh, fortunately, they never touched my kids, and I finally... The last thing I told them, and they quit calling, I said, you know, if you continue to do this, the Lord Jesus himself will curse you and the generations to come in your family. I'd stop now while I can and repent. And that was the last I heard. Mm. Appreciate that. Thank you for being vulnerable, all of you. I'm going to take a little break. Come back. More time for your questions. Let me know what you have. Text it over, please, 877-933-2484. This is Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Dr. Randy Nelson, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. That's my power panel. They know where their power comes from. Be right back. Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. If you have questions about Jesus or want to chat with someone about it, text FAITH to 41 224. That's text FAITH to 41224. And God bless you. Welcome to the show. It's Guy Talk. We're looking for your question, 877-933-2484. I'm looking uh, at Tom, Trevor, and Randy. They're here, ready to take your question. I think it was Augustine that said our our hearts were idle manufacturing facilities for better use of words. Tell me what you guys think about our hearts and how much they are desiring bad things in life. Yeah, so our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee, and I think that's that's true. We talked earlier about having an eternal perspective, and I do think there is an eternal void uh, in our hearts, and we try to fill it with so many things. Uh, 
I like the Gospel of Luke because I think it's a, a corrective to the materialism that uh, so much characterizes our culture. Think about the rich uh, man who stores up all these wealth and the very night his life is, is demanded of him. Uh, he was going to uh, accumulate all this stuff and eat, drink, and be merry, and yet he died. And mm-hmm. as they say, you can't bring it with you. There's no U-Haul behind the uh, behind the hearse, right? Uh, and uh, so I, I, I just I think that's true. I think we have to have that eternal perspective. I think there's an eternal void that only God can fill, and we try to fill it with so many things. Uh, none of it's going to satisfy because mm-hmm. He's true. created us for Himself. Yeah, Amen. And yeah, the the reality of my sinful nature is uh, is never far from me. I, I always the the Lord allows me to remember those things. Uh, you know, it's it's funny in First John chapter one. Um, there seems to be this depiction that John's given of of light and dark, and and it, it's almost it's almost as if he's stating that uh, we're always in one of two places, right? We're either facing sin with our back towards God, or we're facing God with our back towards sin. And his answer is just to turn around, right, to repent, and and so we we have this kind of depiction, and, and the Lord allows us, on you know, He allows us to to sin. I think maybe partially so that we recognize that we need to come back in fellowship with Him at every given point in time, because. Uh, there's I constantly have a reminder of who I am uh, by the grace of God. He's changed me in many ways. Um, but uh, unfortunately, sin is is uh, is on my mind and uh, and it uh, it happens. And it's uh, it's a reality for the Christian as well as the non-Christian. It's just that uh, we have means of dealing with it by the grace of God. Yeah, without Jesus, you wouldn't want me around. I mean, it's really that simple because. I I have to literally daily renew myself to Jesus when I get up in the morning, go to bed at night, because my heart still in this life has a tendency to want to work against me. And I love the scripture passage in John 2, Jesus would entrust his heart to no man because he knew the hearts of all men. Well, yeah, that's who we are. And in my experience, most conversions come from a broken heart. Something happens in somebody's life. Something really goes wrong. And it's when they finally get down and start asking, why am I here? What am I about? And, you know, God, if you're there, I need help. Uh, that's wonderful. And we need more of that. Question came in, and, and I, I feel very sorry for this, this uh, brother, because the question is, why is my life in shambles, even though I'm a Christian? And I really try hard not to sin. I think of what Jesus says in this world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But... This is, feels like a, a, a frustration, a, a cry. It's like, why is my life in such trouble and such shambles? I appreciate the honesty. I do, too. Um, I've done a, more counseling than I probably should have in the ministry, and I've worked with a lot of people. Here's what I've discovered. Most Christians, if they get real honest, have a moment in their life or a time in their life, or their life could almost reflect what he's saying, because it's not always what they expected or what they thought it should be. However, I would advise this uh, this gentleman, keep crying out to the Lord. Keep crying out his name, saying, Jesus, help me, because that's the only way the shamble life can be put back in order. And that's how my life has been put in order. And almost everybody I know in some form or other, when they finally reach that point, they cry out and the Lord takes a hold. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. All right. In John chapter 20, verse 2, it mentions... The other disciple whom Jesus loved. I notice this mentioned like this elsewhere in the Bible. Who is the other disciple and why isn't he named? 
Randy, I'm looking at your direction. Yeah, sure. It's a New Testament passage, right? So I should know? <laughs> oh, we know you know. Come on. Yeah, you know. I, okay, so uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, it's, uh, that phrase is used seven times in the Gospel of John. Uh, most scholars would say that this is John's signature. Yeah. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than John, and that's his signature for his gospel. I, I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. All right. Any other thoughts, Tom Parrish? Well, you, you know, I'm just I'm looking at the Greek. It's phileo in uh, John uh, John 20. I wonder if uh, agape is used anywhere else for that because phileo is the brotherly love, and so there's a I think what John is saying here. You know, some people try today with the woke culture turn this into something else. Yeah. It, it has nothing to do with that. But there is a brotherly love there. And I had a brother who died many years ago, was 10 years older, and the greatest experience I had in my life with another man. I would trust him with my life. So I get a little glimpse of that, and I think that's what it's saying here. I like that. I think I think you're right. All right. Here in Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. It seems like I understand the first part of that verse, that the Lord is near to all who call on him. Isn't that good enough? How do do we make sense of the end of that verse, to all who call on him in truth? Can't I just call to him? Well, first you have to be clear what Lord you're calling out to. I mean, today there are so many gods out there among people that uh, I'm very insistent in my church that I won't allow my leadership just to talk about God in a generic sense. If you want to talk about God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I'm with you. You want to talk about Jesus, I'm with you. I don't have a problem there. But first of all, what Lord are you talking about? And to call upon him in truth is you're calling upon the one God that has the power to change you. And that's the only place I know to go. Yeah, there's... uh powerful section i briefly mentioned this earlier right in psalm chapter 51 where where it's it's david repenting of the sin in which he had with bathsheba and led to uriah's death and uh and he, he makes this this powerful statement towards the end of the psalm right where he says that the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart these O god you will not despise so I think that there is power in truly seeking the Lord in in a sense of humility, in a sense of recognizing who he is versus who we are. You know, uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, or excuse me, chapter 29, verse 13, uh, Jeremiah says that uh, if you seek the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul, you will find him. Because God wants a sincere heart. And he wants to reveal himself to people who are truly sincere in their seeking of the Lord, not just simply seeking a God, as Pastor Tom here was saying, of their own creation, but but truly humbly seeking God and recognizing he is their only hope. All right. In Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So does God want our brokenheartedness to be cared for? Well, of course he does. I mean, he genuinely loves us. You know, I think about, I have three sons and I have seven grandchildren. I would do anything to mend their broken hearts and to help them protect them. And I'm imperfect. 
the Lord's perfect. The biggest problem Jesus has in my life is honestly me. Resisting him, not doing his will, not listening to what he's telling me to do. And if I look in the mirror long enough, I can see where the problem lies, and I cry out that Jesus help me. I like that. So how do we understand that in our fallen world, where we are often disappointed in people, we also disappoint? <laughs> Seems like that's an everyday occurrence, isn't it? Over and over. Yeah, we're all works in progress. Yeah. We're all in different stages. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes we plateau, sometimes we revert, but we're all growing if we're uh, Christians uh, and we're trying to become more like Jesus and we're allowing Jesus to work through us, uh, relying upon his spirit to transform us. Uh, but it, it takes time and it's not going to happen this side of eternity. Uh, so it uh, is something we strive for, but we also realize we're not going to attain it. Mm-hmm. Are Christians supposed to keep the commandments? Yeah, so what commandments uh, would be the question, right? <laughs> um, there, there are two that Jesus seems to emphasize as incredibly important, uh, where Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as you would yourself. And uh, and the fullness of the commandments can be found in this. Uh, so uh, there, I think there's a misunderstanding often for the context of the Mosaic Covenant, um, in, in what it's, what it's for and, uh, what its implication is. But, uh, sections like, uh, Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 21 deal with the, uh, the question as to does a Gentile have to become a Jew in order to follow Jesus? And the clear answer was no. Um, and, uh, because really salvation is grace through faith. Uh, the things that Israel did are beautiful, powerful, important, and, sure. and, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if a Christian decides to do things that are found in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, there's blessings in that, and there's depth and, and wonderful aspects to components to it. Obviously, some of it can't be, overwhelmingly, it can't be done, by the way. So it's, it's close to, I think, uh, 75% of the, of the Mosaic Covenant can't be done today. Um, anyway, so, but, uh, but, you know, there can be elements. If a, if a Christian decides to take Saturday and spend it with the Lord, there's a blessing in that, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it, it, that is not what earns anybody their eternal life. Thank you, Trevor. All right. Any parting thoughts, Tom, Randy? Thank you so much, all of you, for being here. What I liked about today is I heard it over and over focus on Jesus. He's all you need when you have him. You've got everything. Amen, Tom. Yeah. Amen, yeah. I like that thought, Tom. That's a great thought to to leave with after uh, all the great questions that came in. Thank you so much for participating in today's activity. We had a great time. It's really fun to be here around this studio table with these brothers in Christ. We love talking about Jesus. We love answering your questions. And we love you. That's what we love. We love you and we love... Uh, spending time with you. And if you uh, heard anything in this episode that you want more information on, you can always email me, bill at myfaithradio.com, and I'll do my best to follow up to anything that you heard that you still need some clarification on. And we will resume this again next week. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. And thank you to Randy, Trevor, and Tom. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow.
Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.